Well, it's good to be back with you this morning as we continue our sermon series through the book of 2 Peter. I'd like to thank Gus and Alina for filling in for me last week. I thought he did a, a wonderful job. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that 2 Peter contains some of the, the last words of the apostle. And last words are important words. Thank you for mouthing that with me, John. Appreciate that. Last words are important words. And with his last words, it's really interesting what Peter chooses to say. And he chooses to warn, he chooses to, to bleh, getting tongue-tied this morning. He chooses to warn us about one of the greatest dangers facing the church. And it, it's not what you might expect. Surprisingly, it's not persecution from outside the church, but it's hypocrisy from within the church. The greatest threat to Christianity is not out there. It's in here. It's people who claim the name of Christ, but who act and look nothing like him. It's, those who, it's not those who outright reject the gospel. It's wolves in sheep's clothing who peddle a distorted gospel. It's not those with no faith, but rather those with counterfeit faith. And so it's so very important for us to listen to Peter's message, listen intently to his last words as he warns us. And he's going to warn us in this chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Peter, of false teachers. False teachers who weren't just an issue in Peter's day, but they're an issue here in the 21st century. That's why it's so important for us as well to take these to heart. Peddlers of false or distorted gospels are alive and well in the 21st century church. But how do we recognize them? How do we recognize these false teachers? And, and how do we make sure that we're not duped by them? In other words, how can we raise our awareness of them and strengthen our defenses against them? That's where we're going today. Those are the questions that we're going to wrestle with as we look into God's Word this morning. So if you... Um, have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to need for you to put your seatbelts on this morning, okay? Um, we're in for a bumpy ride. Peter's going to confront false teachers in the only way he knows how, head on, as a salty, rough-around-the-edges, blue-collar Galilee fisherman that he was, okay? He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to call these false teachers some names, and use some rather colorful language. And it's pretty obvious. As, as we read, you, you'll hear Peter's tone, and it's not warm and fuzzy. It's exactly the opposite. You can tell that Peter is filled with righteous rage as he writes these words in 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or the Bible app on your phone, 2 Peter chapter 2 is our text this morning. We're going to cover the whole thing. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read? 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented by his right, in his righteous soul over, the, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels of greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whoever overcomes, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to know it and to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You may be seated. Well, I hope your hearts were warmed by the reading of Scripture this morning. So are you ready for a joyful, uplifting sermon? You'll have to come back next week. Um, but if you're ready for a sermon that might actually save your spiritual life, you're in the right place. This chapter is a fairly lengthy text, as you uh, observe from standing so long. So instead of unpacking it verse by verse like we normally do, we're going to jump around a little bit in the text and glean two main things out of it from Peter's tirade against false teachers. So if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write these two things down. Five characteristics of false teaching and three consequences of false teaching. That's going to be our outline. Five characteristics, three consequences. Five characteristics that will help us recognize false teachers and three consequences of their false gospels. And along the way, I'll point out a few modern-day examples that threaten the 21st century church. Let's reread verse 1 as we dive in. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he references the Old Testament and says there were false prophets back then, and there's going to be false teachers today. It's no different. 
and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And right here is the first characteristic of false teachers. They they covertly teach false doctrines. They covertly teach destructive heresies. And and you need to observe here that, that false teachers don't announce that they're false teachers. They do this secretly. They do this covertly behind the scenes. They don't show up and say, hey, I'd like, you to teach, I'd like to teach you some things that are totally contrary to the Word of God that might ruin your life. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for warning me. No, they don't do that. They're a little bit more sneaky. They work behind the scenes. They work hard to convince you that they're representing Christ and that their heretical teaching is actually from God himself. And they'll often hold a Bible in their hand while they do so. They're covert rather than overt. They're secretive. But what they're teaching is heretical and contrary to biblical doctrine. Now, before we go any further, uh, I want to take a little time out and discuss a proper definition of a heretic and heresy, okay? Heresy does not mean that someone disagrees with you. It means that they disagree with God. A newsflash. You and God are not the same person. Okay, So in some healthy uh, Christian circles, you'll often hear these terms heresy and heretic thrown around kind of willy-nilly. Anyone who disagrees with their very narrow view of Scripture or interpretation of theology um, or or practice of Christianity is labeled a heretic. You You disagree with us? You're a heretic. You use a different English translation of the Bible? You're a heretic. You sprinkle people instead of dunk people when you baptize? You're a heretic. You don't believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture, pre-millennial millennium? You're a heretic. You don't have a Sunday night service? You're a heretic. You don't preach in a tie? You're a heretic. You don't hold to a young earth? You're a heretic. You don't homeschool your children? You're a heretic. Here's the trouble with that. Everything that you and I believe and hold as important may not be exactly what God holds with equal importance. Just because someone disagrees with you does not mean that they disagree with God. And it's spiritual pride to think that God believes everything you do in exactly the same way. Now, a true heretic is one who disagrees with God and what he has clearly revealed in his word. I heard another pastor recently illustrate it this way. There are closed-handed issues, and there's open-handed issues. Paul says in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. This implies that not everything is of equal importance. Some things are of first importance, and others are not. They're of lesser importance. Those things that are of first importance, we need to put in a closed hand, hold on to them tightly, never let them go. Things like the Trinity. There is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, closed hand. The Bible is God's word, closed hand. Jesus is God's Son, closed hand. He was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, lived without sin, died on a cross, in our place, on our behalf, for our sins, rose from the dead, is king of all creation, is coming again to judge the living and the dead, closed hands. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, closed hand. 
We need to agree on these things and hold on to them tightly because they are of first importance. But there are other things over here on the other side that we can disagree on and still be considered an orthodox Christian. In any family, there are points of disagreement. And we need to hold these less important items with an open hand. It doesn't mean that these items are unimportant or that we shouldn't have positions on them and convictions about them, but they're not as important. Things like your end times theology, premillennial, amillennial, pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, open hand, okay? Should we sprinkle people or dunk people when we baptize them? We happen to dunk people, but there's brothers and sisters in Christ, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, who sprinkle people? Open hand. We're going to be spending eternity with them. If you're shocked by that, come see me afterwards. Should foot washing be an ordinance of the church? Yes, people argue about that, okay? And I'm glad we don't. Um, <laughs> but our grace brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, hold that as one of the, the, right alongside with communion and baptism as one of the three ordinances, the three things that Jesus ordained for his church to, to continue to practice throughout history. Open hand. Congregational forms of church governments versus elder-led church governance. Open hand. Plurality of leadership versus single pastor models. Open hand. Arminian theology, which emphasizes human responsibility, versus Calvinistic theology, which emphasizes divine sovereignty when it comes to matters of salvation. Open hand. Which English translation of the Bible you use? Open hand. How old is the earth? Old enough. Open hand. <laughs> a legalist is someone who takes something that should be held with an open hand and moves it over here to a closed hand. A heretic does the opposite takes something that should be in the closed hand and moves it over here. See the difference? And they typically operate by adding to the word of God, subtracting from the deity of Christ, multiplying the requirements of salvation, or dividing loyalty away from the gospel and toward their own purposes. In other words, heretics do bad math, Okay. They add to the word of God, they subtract from the deity of Christ, they multiply the requirements of salvation, they divide loyalty away from the gospel and told, toward their own earthly agenda. Mormonism would be a classic example of this. Is the Bible God's word? Yes, of course we believe the Bible. We love the Bible. But have you heard of this other testament of Jesus Christ? It's called the Book of Mormon. Was Jesus God's son? Oh, yes, absolutely. Jesus, of course, was God's son. That's clearly in the Bible. Just like you and I are sons of God, and we can have our own planet someday. Do you believe in salvation by grace through faith? Oh, yes, of course we do. And here's the list of things you need to do in order to be truly accepted by God. Oh, and to gain access to the temple, you need to give a tithe to the Mormon church. Every other church is apostate. This is the only true church, so you... You have to join ours to really get the truth. Add, subtract, multiply, divide. Bad math. So that's the first characteristic of false teachers. They bring destructive heresies into the church. Now look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. How many? Many. Okay, false teachers are popular. That's the second aspect, the second uh, characteristic of false teaching. They covertly teach destructive heresies. Number two, say this out loud with me, they have popular appeal. Crowds will often flock to false teachers. Why? Well, false teachers give them what they really want. 
What is it that gives false teachers their popularity? It's because they appeal usually to sensuality of some form, in some form or fashion. They not only feed their own natural desires, they feed the desires of the flesh in their followers. Look at verse 18 as an example of this. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So if a Bible teacher is calling you to happiness rather than holiness, red flag, most likely a false teacher. If you're being called to self-fulfillment rather than self-denial, red flag, most likely a false teacher. If someone says to you, God would never make you with desires that he didn't want you to act on, red flag, you're listening to a false teacher. One of the most blatant examples of this in our day are the very popular health and wealth gospel teachers that you'll often see on um, religious television stations. They have a huge following because they appeal to the, the base desires of the flesh, usually a desire to get rich, to have a good life. And they pray off of that, they have that desire themselves, and they pray off of that desire in their hearers and their followers. They say things like, God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be blessed. If you're poor or struggling with money, the problem is not God. It's your faith. If you give me money, God will bless you a thousandfold. You've seen him. You just need to name it and claim it, brothers and sisters. So send me your faith, your, your faith seed money, and God's going to multiply it. You just need to manifest the goodness of God in your life. How do I know this is true? Well, just look at my beautiful mansion and my beautiful cars and the jet that takes me everywhere. This can all be yours if you just have enough faith. I see men and women who preach that, and it makes me spitting mad. They're peddling a false gospel. False teachers are so popular because they appeal to base desires, and they equate those desires with the will of God. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Which leads us to a third characteristic of false teachers that we see in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will exploit you. So false teachers, teachers covertly teach destructive heresies. They have popular appeal. And thirdly, say this one out loud with me. They selfishly exploit Christians and Christianity for their own ends. They use their teaching to exploit others. This reveals that they aren't worshiping Jesus. They're actually worshiping something else, whether it be power or control or money or fame. And they're simply using Christians and the name of Christ to get what they really want. They co-opt the cause of Christ and exploit Christ followers for their own earthly agendas. You know, I was out of town last week. I flew to Colorado for a navigators conference and I was waiting in line in Chicago to get on the second leg of my flight and um, struck up a conversation with the people behind me on the jetway as we're uh, waiting to board the, board the plane. And um, they asked me if, 
they were very chatty, and they asked me if where I was go where they knew where I was going. They asked me um, what I was doing in Colorado Springs, and I said, "Well, I'm going to a conference." I said, "Oh, really? What kind of conference?" And I said, "Well, it's a a, a conference for um, uh, I forget exactly how I answered that actually. Maybe that's that's not actually that's, I remember why because that wasn't the question they asked. They they asked, "So what do you do?" That's what it was. They didn't ask about the conference. They asked, "So so what do you do?" And um, Sometimes I'm kind of cheeky when I'm on, on a plane and I don't really answer that question. I say I'm in leadership development for a nonprofit. That, that usually keeps the conversation going a little bit longer. Because if you say you're a pastor, it shuts down conversation really fast. You know, they get all weird around you, start confessing their sins. It's, it's odd. But, um, so, but I, I just went ahead and, and um, said I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, we're Christians too. See? And emblazoned across the front of her T-shirt was the name of a very polarizing political figure. And, um, and I bit my tongue. I didn't say anything. But I thought, this woman has bought into an earthly agenda and equated it with Christianity. And whoever taught her that this polarizing political figure whose name she proudly wore on her t-shirt could be equated with the cause of Christ or being a Christian was a false teacher at worst or a misguided one at best. doesn't matter what name was on the t-shirt. To quote J.D. Greer, when the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant and the offspring looks nothing like Jesus This woman's thinking is a blatant example of how easily the name of Christ can be co-opted for a different agenda, an earthly agenda. So false teachers covertly teach destructive heresies, have popular appeal, selfishly exploit Christians and Christianities for other means and purposes. And fourthly, they give counterfeit hope. They give counterfeit they talk a good game and promise great fulfillment, but it's all smoke and mirrors. Peter points this characteristic out in verse 17. These false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Imagine you live in a desert, okay? And you're dying of thirst because it hasn't rained for months. And finally, you, you, you see over there an oasis, a spring, and you walk up to it, and you walk up, and there is no water, a spring with no water. And then you hear the rumble of thunder, and you see on the horizon storm clouds barreling towards you, but then they kind of vaporize into mist and waft by you without a single raindrop. That's the imagery that Peter is using here of false teachers. They promise so much, but following their teaching only brings emptiness and leaves you thirsty. All of our souls are thirsty. That's a common theme throughout Scripture. But it's a God-sized thirst that can only be quenched by Him and His soul-satisfying truth. In Jeremiah 2.13, God says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can, cisterns that can hold no water. False teachers are waterless springs and rainless clouds who encourage their followers to dig broken cisterns. They give counterfeit hope. If you listen to me, you'll get rich. If you follow me, you'll know the true meaning of scripture. That traditional interpretation isn't really what God means. 
God would never want you to deny those desires you have inside. If you follow my teaching, you'll lose weight and keep it off and be part of God's holy remnant. Well, some of you are chuckling because that's in our backyard. That's the message of a false teacher named Gwen Shamblin who started a cult through a weight loss curriculum called the Way Down Workshop that infiltrated thousands of churches across the world. Thousands of Bible-believing churches. And through that, she gathered people from far and wide who moved here to Brentwood, Tennessee, a southern suburb, and started a counterfeit church that denies the Trinity called the Remnant Fellowship. HBO Max recently did a docuseries on it. It's fascinating. It's tragic. Scary and sad, but it's fascinating. I encourage you to watch it. So false teachers covertly teach destructive heresies, have popular appeal, selfishly exploit Christians and Christianity for their own ends, give counterfeit hope, and finally, their character looks nothing like Christ. Their character looks nothing like Christ. By their fruits, you will know them. It may take a while for the fruit of their life to to be exposed, but it eventually comes out. Look again at verse 13. They count it a pleasure, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. They feast with you while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. The Greek's a little bit more colorful than that, but it's translated with a kind of a, a, a euphemism here, accursed children. If you feel, if, not if you feel, if you peel back the, the smooth veneer that false teachers wear, you'll inevitably find an ugly picture. Their true character looks nothing like Christ. They're godless instead of godly. So those are the five characteristics of false teachers. Let's review them together. Go ahead and say them out loud with me. One, They covertly teach destructive heresy. Two, they have popular appeal. Three, they selfishly exploit Christians and Christianity for their own ends. Four, they give counterfeit hope. Five, their character looks nothing like Christ. Now let's quickly turn our attention to the second half of our outline, the three consequences of false teaching. Read verse 18 with me. They entice by sensual passions the flesh of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever has overcome a person, to that he is enslaved. The first consequence of false, false, first consequence of false teaching is this. People are enslaved by it. People are enslaved by it. False teachers themselves are enslaved by idols, and the people who are enticed and entrapped by their false teaching end up worshiping those very same counterfeit gods, whether it be sex or money or power or comfort or control, etc. Looking to anything else besides God for your satisfaction, your security, your significance, looking to anything else for your ultimate identity or purpose in life will become an idol, and idols always enslave. Looking to anything else besides Jesus for ultimate satisfaction, security, and significance will enslave you. 
So false teaching enslaves people. A second consequence of false teaching is that lives are destroyed by it. Say that out loud with me. Lives are destroyed by it. Peter calls them destructive heresies for a reason. I have a friend who moved his family here to Tennessee um, quite a while ago to be part of Gwen Gwen Shamblin's weight loss cult down in Brentwood. He's gotten out of it. Um, In fact, the whole family's gotten out of it, but it shipwrecked faith in his family, wreaked havoc with his wife and with his kids. The result was absolutely devastating. These false, false teaching not only causes temporal destruction, but it can also lead to eternal destruction. It's pretty obvious from Peter's scathing words that God is going to severely judge false teachers. Just go back and read this chapter again. It comes through loud and clear. One example in verse 17, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. And hear this, for them, the gloom of utter darkness is reserved. There's a special judgment for those who proclaim to teach the word of God, but are actually peddling a false gospel. It's not going to go well for them on judgment day. And unfortunately, it will not go well for those who follow their teachings, hook, line, and sinker. So false teaching enslaves people. It destroys lives. And a third consequence, consequence found up in verse 2 is this, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, say this with me, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, a watching world can rarely tell the difference between genuine Christianity and a counterfeit Christianity or a co-opted Christianity for an earthly agenda. And unfortunately, we all get lumped together in this same ball of dough. And the way of truth is brought into disrepute among those who do not believe. So here's the third result. Third consequence of false teaching is this. False teaching tarnishes the reputation of Christ. False teaching tarnishes the reputation of Christ and Christianity as a whole. Unbelievers have enough discernment to see the exploitation happening, and it gives them yet another reason to reject Christ. And those who are being exploited by false teaching, if they wake up and smell the coffee, will oftentimes throw the baby out with the bathwater and shipwreck their faith. And the testimony of Christ is dragged through the mud by false teachers and false teaching, which is probably the primary reason for Peter's salty language here, for for Peter getting so angry as he writes. It's the primary reason for God's severe judgment upon it, because he will not share his glory with another, and he doesn't like when somebody tarnishes it. He will judge it. So the three consequences, just for review. False teaching enslaves people. It destroys lives. It tarnishes the reputation of Christ. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, I want to shift to the so what, the application. How do we keep from being influenced by false teachers and false teaching? Well, we've been given two very important resources. One is the Word of God, the Bible. 
Do you have a regular plan for intake of this book? Is it a regular part of your life? I encourage you, if you don't have a regular plan for getting your nose in this book, get one. Your Bible app on your phone is a great way to do that. Plenty of reading plans, devotional plans that you can sign up for. If you don't have your nose in this book, you're easy pickings. Because somebody will say, this is what the Bible teaches, but if you don't know what the Bible teaches, you won't have the discernment to tell the difference. God's given us his word. Another very important resource is he's given us his people. He's given us his people. That's why uh, the Apostle Paul says, actually, um, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Maybe the Apostle Paul says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Get together. We need each other. There's safety in numbers, so to speak. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells his people and is a check and balances against some weird theology. So if somebody comes and says, an interpretation different than 2,000 years of church history, the community of faith can go, ah, that doesn't sound quite right. That's not what the Spirit of God through the Word of God is telling me. And we can correct each other and point each other towards Jesus and in truth. If you're not part of a city group, get involved in a city group or a discipleship group, a Bible study on campus, with, perhaps with Navigators or Asian Christian Fellowship. Get involved with a community of faith. Be known and know others. That's one of the safeguards. God's given us his word, his people, and his spirit in his people. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the warnings we read in it today. Father, it's not an easy passage to read. It's, it's uh, kind of jarring. Um, but we, we see that there is truth and there is error. We see that there's um, your beautiful word and then the counterfeit of it that sometimes looks just close enough that it's easy to get sucked in. Father, guard our hearts. And as we as a community of faith gather and remind ourselves of what we believe, Lord, use this community to galvanize us As we sing this song, Lord, we declare our faith and we encourage each other with what we believe and know to be true and put in that closed hand and hold onto it tightly. Amen.